You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. When I was going through your story, there's kind of a little bit of, I guess, irony there in the sense that you were a consultant breast surgeon, late again diagnosed, of course, with breast cancer. Um, so I wonder if you could tell me perhaps about the day in 2015 when your life really changed when you got that first diagnosis. Yeah, again, as you said, I, I was 40. I just thought I had another breast cyst. I never checked my breasts regularly because like a lot of women, it's not going to happen to me. I hadn't even got my husband to come with me because I just thought it would be another breast cyst. And although I worked in Ipswich, I was being seen in a different hospital where my husband worked simply because I didn't want my own team talking about me. I didn't want them to see them. I was private. And I got called through and my surgeon examined me and she said, well, the mammogram is normal. I'm not sure what it is. We'll get an ultrasound. And I do ultrasounds myself. So I sat down on the chair and I arm up, cold jelly on the boob, and I looked at the screen and I saw a cancer. I didn't need to wait for the biopsy. I knew it was a classic appearance. And I could tell by the radiologist's face that she knew it was a cancer as well. My consultant came in to see what was happening and she said, right, want me to call your husband? Yes, please. We knew. And in that split second, I knew it was cancer. It was big. I was young, so I need chemo. I had a good idea what my chance of being alive in 10 years would be. Whereas most patients are drip fed information. You have a lump, you have a biopsy, you get the results. You have surgery, you get the results. I knew. And I got to ring my mum that night and say, I'll be telling you I've got cancer in a couple of days time. Don't be silly. No, I will. And it was like a huge part of my brain just switched off because I couldn't cope with what was happening to me. It, it was just too much. So, yeah, like kind of, I'd love to go deeper on that. What was kind of mm. your initial emotional reaction, having to tell people about all that as well? Oh, it was, so I rang my mum first of all, and again, she didn't believe me. And I told Dermot, it's cancer. He's no, it's not, you'll be fine, but you know. And I wanted to protect them from the reality as long as I could. And I was very lucky. They rushed some provisional results through in a couple of days because of who I am and I'd worked there, but I still had to wait a week to get the full results. And that week of waiting was horrific. With the internet at my fingertips, Googling metastatic cancer blogs, because I knew everyone saying, no, no, you'll be fine. They, no, I'm sorry. And when I went in to get the results, I told my husband, if it's good news, you'll go in alone. If it's bad news, the breast care nurse comes to get you. Because the patient of mine had commented on that. And the breast care nurse called us through and they only go in if it's bad news. So I knew. And my surgeon was crying and the breast care nurse was crying. But I was like, yeah, I knew this was coming. It was happening to someone else. And then going home. And we had to decide who to tell. And when to tell people, because no one has a right to know, did we tell everybody? And I only told my parents that night and my brother who lived in Switzerland. 
but I knew I need chemo. And at the time I was reasonably active on Twitter. I talked a lot about triathlons and baking and I thought I can't not talk about breast cancer for nine months. And people are going to recognize me walking around a hospital with a bald head. So we made the decision to tell Twitter the day after in the morning, I'm a breast surgeon. I've got breast cancer. Things are going to be a bit different. And I had to make sure that my husband Dermot was on board because it would change his life too. But he agreed. And we spent the rest of that day basically calling everyone who'd come to our wedding to say, Liz has got breast cancer. And that was so hard because they're all crying and swearing. Oh my God, what are we going to do? And I'm like, just numb, just listening to these people crying and swearing. And it's like, that was really, really hard. It's like we had to be strong to cope with their shock at the news. Sure. Really sure. tough. I, I can only imagine. So when you got the diagnosis, I take it this at the time was just local to the breast. They hadn't spread. Yeah, no. Just local. Amazing. Um, so kind of, I wonder kind of for you, obviously, you'd, you, you, as you said, you're a consultant breast surgeon. Yeah. How are you processing that? Because you, I imagine through your career, you would be telling other women. Yeah. yeah. What was that like? I, I knew what I was going to be told. Um. I knew because I had a large cancer in a small breast that I would need a mastectomy. And I had to decide whether I wanted a reconstruction. And my surgeon said, um, where do you want to be treated? Because I'm not sure I can. As a breast surgeon, you treat a lot of colleagues. A lot of nurses come through because it affects one in seven, eight women. And it's very hard to treat people you know. And she wasn't sure she could. And I know most breast surgeons in the UK by name. So that was really hard deciding, where do I go? And I thought I was having chemo first because it was big. I was always going to need chemo. And sometimes giving it first, you can shrink a tumor down so you can avoid a mastectomy. And I thought I knew what chemo would be like. But when I went to see the oncologist and I sat listening to her tell me about all the side effects and all the complications, it hit me. This is not just a drug. This could kill me. This could leave me with permanent numbness of my fingertips so I could never operate again. And I sit in meetings saying, yeah, give them chemo, give them chemo. It is not chemo. It is really, really hard. And the impact of finding out, like when you have a CT scan, the contrast can make you feel like you've wet yourself. And I sat on the table checking my hand and my groin thinking, God, if I wet myself, no, that's just the contrast. The stuff that I didn't know, I, I was shocked at how little I knew about what my patients go through. And for people listening now that, uh, that may, may not know anyone that has breast cancer, yeah. you said that it's, it's quite common. What would the typical, say, prognosis be for someone with breast cancer? You mentioned, you know, that the chance of you being like yeah. What what is that problem? That's a that's a great question. And actually, to anyone listening, it can be very triggering listening to someone talk about cancer. So if this is close to you, you know someone going through it, please switch off and come back and listen in the future because it's really triggering. Most people with breast cancer will not die of it. About 70, 80% of women will go on and live a healthy life is the wrong word, but they won't die of breast cancer. And there are new treatments being developed all the while to reduce the risk of it coming back. But about one in three, one in four women will get a recurrence. And it's normally in older women because most women with breast cancer are older, but it can come back in the future. And it can come back 20, 30 years down the line. 
And I used to worry about the numbers. My cancer was big. It was in my lymph nodes. And I knew I had a high chance of it coming back. And you can obsess over the numbers. Mm. Time helps. Time where I didn't spend every day waking up thinking, is today the day it comes back? But also realizing statistics are fine. You could have a 90% chance of it coming back, but you don't know whether you're in the 90% or the 10%. And actually for me, it's 50-50. It comes back or it doesn't. I can exercise, I can be healthy, but everything else is out of my control. And getting that into my head was really freeing. Right. And, and I guess if Does we, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Makes perfect yeah. sense. So I guess if we kind of like fast forward a little bit, so obviously, so everything went well uh, in terms of the treatment. Yeah. So I, I had chemotherapy, I had a vasectomy and reconstruction, and I knew that chemo had shrunk my tumor completely. It had disappeared. And I went to get the results of my mastectomy and it was the 23rd of December and I was expecting good news. And I sat in that room feeling the negative energy of all the other couples who were waiting to find out they had cancer before Christmas. But I was smiling inside because I'd been through that. And my surgeon said that there was 13 centimeters of cancer left in my breast that hadn't shown up on the scans and my lymph nodes were involved. And I thought, I'd swear, oh my God, this is, I know what this means. My prognosis is much worse. I needed to have more surgery. I needed to have more radiotherapy. And that was really hard to cope with. Went into an instant menopause, took a long time to go back to work because physically and psychologically and ethically, I had to make sure it was safe for me and my patients. And then I'd had a lot of scar tissue. Um, I've been having physio on it every couple of weeks to try and help my arm work because I'd had a frozen shoulder. And what radiotherapy can do to an implant is it can make it contract like a tennis ball. So my nice soft right. implant moved up my chest wall, moved over to the left. I was in chronic pain. I thought, time to get rid. I'm prepared to go flat. And my surgeon said, let's just look at this little bit of scar tissue. Let's just get a scan to be safe. It was a two and a half centimeter local recurrence on my chest wall. And again, I'm a consultant breast surgeon. I didn't know that my cyst was cancer and I didn't know that this was a recurrence. So that meant going flat. That meant further surgery and the side effects meant I couldn't use my arm properly. So I was forced to retire because I couldn't operate. And I'd love to just kind of pick up on that. So you mm. mentioned kind of the side effects. Obviously, you've gone through chemotherapy, radiotherapy. How did that impact you? What was that like day to day going through that treatment? So most people know that you lose your hair during chemotherapy. Most chemotherapy drugs make you lose your hair. I knew that. I didn't realize you lost all your hair. You wake up one morning and your leg hair has gone. Like, did the bed bugs eat it? I'm expecting to find a pile of hair in the bathroom. It just disappears. You lose your pubic hair. I had no idea. And a lot of my patients have chemo. The constipation, having to take laxatives that I used to give to little old ladies on the ward just made me feel old and frail. My brain didn't work. I still can no longer do cryptic crosswords. And I'd say, can you pass me the cup? But I'd be saying orange. And in my head, I'm saying cup, but no one understands me. That just feeling frail and weak and old. I lost my pride. I lost my dignity. I had numbness in my fingertips. I, my lips cracked. It just affects all of you. My sense of taste. Tea tasted disgusting. It was either metallic or chalky. And it was just... I can't remember it now, 
you suddenly wake up and chemo is done and you move on. But that was awful. And I was a fit 40 year old and I struggled. The chronic pain after a mastectomy that I know happens to 30% of patients, but I never really talked about it as a surgeon, but left with a burning electric shock pain. I was on a host of painkillers for the tiredness of radiotherapy, the instant menopause overnight when your sex drive vanishes, everything is dry. It was just, it's not just a pretty scar and hello and goodbye. The permanent side effects of any cancer treatment can be disabling and we just let people go and live with them. And I had no idea how hard that was for patients. It so was humbling yeah. in a way. Oh, I, I, can I can only imagine. And, and two Sorry, things I'd just like to, oh, please go on. This is my cocker spaniel hunter who's just coming in to say hello. <laughs> hello, uh, hunter. Hi, hunter. You're on YouTube. <laughs> I love it. Um, so two things that I just uh, just have to clarify there. So a mastectomy, yeah. for the people who don't know, this is a removal of the yeah. breast? So, yeah. So the main treatment of breast cancer is surgery to remove the breast. And it's based on how big the cancer is compared to the size of your breast. We can remove about a fifth of the breast tissue and reshape it to make it look like a decent breast. But if the breast cancer is bigger, you'll have an awful result. So we remove the breast, which is a mastectomy, and every woman can then be offered a reconstruction where we either use an implant or we use fat from your tummy or your back, as long as other conditions are right. But we can re recreate a breast mound. And just one other thing I'd just like to clarify, because you mentioned that you were 40 Mm. And you've gone through this treatment and you're suddenly menopausal. I yeah. mean, I'm certainly no export, expert in, you know, uh, 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 the, the, the female cycle and menopause and whatnot. But that seems awfully young to go through menopause. Is that, that a side effect of the treatment? It is. So what chemotherapy does is chemotherapy stops any fast growing cell in the body. And because cancer grows more quickly than the rest of you, more cancer cells die than the cells in your gut. But because your ovaries are growing, chemotherapy shuts them off. So you produce much less estrogen. And the younger women are more likely to have chemo because their risk of recurrence is higher. So women in their 20s, 30s and 40s are made menopausal. But after oh. chemotherapy, we give you drugs if your cancer is sensitive to estrogen to reduce the levels in your body because that reduces the risk of it coming back in the future. So that means turning off your estrogen and it's instant. Within days or weeks, you suddenly wake up fully menopausal. I thought I'd wet myself the first time I had a night sweat. I felt a trickle of fluid run down my butt, the, the crease of my bum going down my inner leg, but God, I've wet myself. No, that's a night sweat. And that's gonna happen every hour on the hour. The hot flushes where you're always stripping off, the loss of libido overnight. Women in their twenties and thirties whose sex drive vanishes. You just feel old before your time. And there are lots of things we can do to help. I had no idea about because HRT isn't safe. But again, I used to tell my patients, you have a couple of hot flushes and a bit of vaginal dryness and you'll be fine. And some women are, but a lot of us aren't. And I think that this kind of does highlight an interesting point where uh, perhaps for yourself, obviously I imagine now that you've gone through this I wonder mm. if you had that this same level of experience, how that perhaps would have guided your care before as a surgeon, having developed this whole new experience, perception, even a level of empathy that I imagine yeah. you have now that you didn't have when you were working. So it's really interesting. When I went back to work between my first and second diagnosis, I wanted to give patients a hug and tell them I know what it's like and I know I can help. 
but I can't because ethically there could only be one patient in the room and it couldn't be me. And when you have cancer, you don't want to hear about your great aunt who did this because it's, it's, it's you. You don't care. You can't, you don't want to compare yourself to anyone else because this is all about you. And I still had to be the bad guy, the person to say it's come back or it's in your nodes or you need chemo. What I hoped I could do is help guide the breast care nurses to make sure someone was talking about sex and exercise and diet. And it's why I wrote the book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer. So when I was diagnosed, I bought 10 books written by patients to find out what it was like to be a patient. And I was a consultant breast surgeon. And I was horrified by questions women were asking on forums, like, if I have sex during chemo, will my husband's hair fall out? And I now know that you remember nothing when someone tells you you have cancer. But as a surgeon, I'm giving them half an hour of my greatest tips. And it's like, yeah, I've got cancer. What did she say? And they have to go home and tell their family. What did the doctor say? Uh, I don't know. So many questions. And by writing a book that covers why doctors do what they do to you, for how to cope with the mental health and what to eat and how to exercise and sex life and work and travel and all of that, I hoped I could use my knowledge to help patients, every patient, rather than the ones I might see. But it was a very fine line to cross when you've had the illness your patient has and what do you tell them and when do you tell them? Because there are no rules. Right. And if we kind of, I guess, uh, go forward. So you, uh, you've you come through this, this treatment and then in mm-hmm. 2018, the cancer comes back. Came back, yeah. I'm wondering, did you th- like what did you think that the chances of this happening were, and kind of what was your reaction when obviously that that came back then when you had that news? So I had about a sixty percent chance of being alive in ten years, and part of me thought most doctors will often have really bad medical experiences, and I, I assumed it's going to come back. It's me. I had a thirteen centimeter cancer, not seen on the scan. It's it's going to come back. I was just a matter of waiting for it to happen, but I thought it would come back in my bones or my liver. I didn't expect it to be a nodule on my chest wall. And that was really scary Mm. because if you get an early local recurrence, the chance of it coming back where it can't be cured is much, much higher. And local recurrence is relatively rare, only about three or 5% of women, but there aren't trials, there aren't books, there aren't places to go to for information. And I felt scared. It It was terrifying thinking, okay, I can't think ahead to the future because most women with metastatic cancer will live between three and five years. And I thought, well, if that's all I've got, if it comes back in six months, I can't plan ahead. It was a really, really scary place to be in. And it was hard. My husband and my mum and dad didn't really understand what was going on in my head. And I felt, I don't want to talk to you. You don't get it. I only want to talk to cancer people. And I probably snubbed them and pushed them away. But it was really, really hard to deal with. And I now know that I'm lucky to be alive today and I hope it never comes back. But that fear of waiting and you get a cough and you think, is this a worrying cough? Do I drive my husband mad every time I've got pain in my hip or do we just say it's nothing? It's really hard to monitor yourself and not get scared. And I'd be really interested to know, with all that said, you know, I mean, Mm. you really must have had to have steer your own mortality in the face. Yeah. How how has that perhaps guided how you live today? Like, have you has it changed Ooh. your perception on things? How, how was that guided there? It's a great question. Um, 
before my cancer came back, I never talked about death. My husband and I hadn't done our wills. I hadn't thought about whether I want to be buried or cremated. We didn't talk about death, like most people listening. But it's the one inevitability in life. We all get born and we all die. And my husband believed that he would die before me. He's older than me. And I had to say, no, my cancer might come back. Can we just admit that out loud? Talk about the elephant in the room. Get our wills done. Get our lasting powers of attorney done. Work out what we want for the funerals. Can we just do it, please? And doing that was a huge weight off my mind. We'd admitted the reality of what was going to happen in the future, and we'd done the death admin. And having done that, I felt I could move on. Um, and it's, I honestly don't know where the strength has come from to cope like I have done. Before I was a very private, shy person, and now I'm talking about my sex life in the mail on Sunday, and I'm on the internet, and I'm doing this. And it's just, it's a burning need to help people. The old cliche that you should never say in a medical school interview, why do you want to be a doctor? I want to help people. <laughs> um, I do. And by talking about it, I found I can help so many different types of people. And that keeps me going. I feel I still have a purpose and I can turn my cancer diagnosis into a conduit to help others. But there are days where I wish I could put cancer behind me and never talk about it again. And every time I look in the mirror, you see the scars, the chronic pain that you live with. It's... um. It's hard when you make a living out of cancer. Right. Right. And I'd be curious to know, um, kind of because what you kind of mentioned was uh, really, I guess, this kind of ambient anxiety. Is it going to come mm. back? Do I have three to six months? Um, I'd be kind of curious what, like, you, you mentioned at the start as well, that everybody thinks, oh, it's not going to be me. Like, how, how do you actually perceive death these days? I'd be really interested to know, like, what you actually think. So, I... As a doctor on the wards, I saw the bad deaths in the hospital. Mm. I saw the patients who died on an operating table after an emergency. I would see the cardiac arrests where the team is called and there's all these people rushing around and it's undignified and it doesn't work. I never saw the quiet, peaceful deaths of palliative care were involved. They had the right drugs at the right time. Everyone knew what was happening. Everyone understood. I never saw those. My image of death as a doctor was, it's not fun. Mm. And I imagined that my own death would be like that based on my own experiences. And it, I was scared of dying. I was scared of being in pain. I didn't want that because I'd seen patients have that when I was called to them. And I've now, what changed my perception was two things. One was I started doing a job when I retired one day a week at the local hospital, reviewing the notes of people who died to try and improve care because hospitals make mistakes. Can we stop that? But actually, I saw good, especially during COVID, nurses giving lonely people iPads to listen to their favorite music and all sorts of little things. And when the palliative care team come in, because people think palliative care means you're dying, but they're there, it's supportive care. I could be talking to them now because I've had cancer and they deal with the symptoms and the family knows what's going on. So this is the thing. If you're on death row, you get to choose your final meal. But if patients don't know they're dying because doctors don't want them to know, we think they'll slip into a coma, your final meal may be cold hospital food. Mm. 
If you know you're dying, you can say, well, right, I want to listen to Elvis Presley and I want to get outside to hear the birds and I want to be able to stroke my dog and I want to tell my brother I still hate him, whatever it is. Give them a chance to do their own death admin and have their final five senses. Do you want a bit of gin and tonic and a cold of a cube of cold chocolate? Whatever it is. But if you don't tell someone they're dying, they don't have the chance to say that. And then when I started my own podcast, Don't Ignore the Elephant, I talked to an incredible doctor called Catherine Mannix, whose book, With the End in Mind, explains what happened when you die. And the queen has done us all a huge favor because she has had the most natural death of old age. And that's how most people die. And I'm not scared of it anymore. Wow. Well, it, really it took a long time to get there. It happens yeah. and we need to talk. So, Dad, do you have a death box? Does I someone did. know? Yeah. So Greg Wise talked about this. Your internet passwords, where the spare car keys are, how to use the washing machine or where the remote control is, all the stuff that only you know. Right. And especially with the age of the internet, what do you want your last tweet to be? What do you want people to say? Do you want people to manage all those little things that are so personal? Because with our iPhones, it's all with a fingerprint or the number or the face recognition. Can someone get into your phone to look at your emails after you die to find out what the bank account was? All this sort of stuff that you don't think about until someone is close to dying. Like, crikey, their life is on their phone and I can't access it because I don't know what their number is. I interviewed... Uh... Ian McGilchrist, he's a mm -hmm. psychiatrist. Are, yeah. are you familiar with him? I, I, yeah, I, I listened to the podcast. He's oh, great. Amazing. Great I, episode. I and he said in there that he said that we make the wrong things explicit. He said we make things like sex and we try to debunk music and art. And he said, but we don't make the things that we need to make explicit, explicit. Like he said, we don't talk about death enough. No. He said, when, when you do, he said it robs you of his power. We, we need to. It, it is the one thing that is going to happen to all of us. And we don't know when it's going to happen. So everyone should have a lasting power of attorney who can make medical and financial decisions for you. We should all have um, an advanced care plan. So if you're young and fit and healthy, you probably do want to have CPR if you suddenly have a heart attack in hospital. But when you're 70 and frail, you might not. You can change any time. But the minute you're 21, we should say, right, what do you want to happen when you die? Right. And um, one of the things that I've also kind of observed uh, just from you know conversations with friends as soon as someone dies it's always yeah. oh you know what was it that kind of killed them it kind of whatever it is it's always talked about in some ways as if it was really preventable you know it kind of always uh pathologizes lifestyle issues or that their death could have been saved by uh eating more blueberries or you know fasting in the morning and i think that's quite yeah. an upsetting one because it happens to us all it's really so I was talking to someone earlier today when Sarah Harding died of breast cancer the media said oh but she partied and she drank so much most illness is bad luck it's like people say if anyone says I lost my battle with cancer I will come back and haunt cancer happens to you and you die because medical science loses the battle we don't say people lost their battle with a heart attack or the queen lost her battle with old age most illness is bad luck and you die because the drugs aren't there and the body is too weak to cope. And we, it's, it's really, really hard because we know that being overweight increases the risk of getting cancer and increases the risk of getting it coming back. But if you are overweight and have cancer, you don't want to think that it's your fault. And it's really hard to get 
public health messages across without upsetting and triggering people. And I still don't know what the answer is, but your take on it changes completely when you have an illness. I didn't know anyone who had cancer in my family. I was the first person. And suddenly that battle language really pissed me off. Hadn't crossed my mind before then. Right. I wonder if you could go deeper on that. So the language mm. people usually use is, oh, you know, as she's in a battle with cancer, she lost her battle. You think that perhaps this is not a, a, a helpful linguistics to, to No, use? I think it's lazy and it's easy and it's emotional and it gets that tug at the heartstrings. Oh, isn't it tragic? They've died. Right. And yes, they're so brave and they fought hard. And a soldier chooses to go into battle knowing they might die. They make that decision to join the army or the navy and go off and fight. You don't decide one day to have cancer. It happens to you. Most of the time it's bad luck. Sometimes it's genetics, which is still bad luck. And you may fight to cope with the side effects of treatment. You may fight to cope with chemo. But when your cancer comes back, you die because medical science doesn't have the drugs to stop it. It's not your fault. It, you did not die because you didn't fight hard enough. And it makes you think like, I'm a loser. She lost her battle. She didn't fight hard enough. And that's the last thing you want to hear. And I think a lot of cancer patients don't like that language in the media. But what's the alternative? They died of cancer. And they died with cancer. It doesn't have the same tabloid headline. And I'd love to know what people listening and watching think. But you don't say, again, they lost their battle with asthma. Sounds right. ridiculous. Right. But cancer, we don't talk about cancer. It's so emotive. It's like when I was training, you never said the C word. The patient has a lump or a neoplasm or a malignancy. Don't say the C word. Shh. It's ridiculous. And I wonder if in some ways it's kind of a reflection of ourselves, because if we phrase every disease as a battle, in some ways that we can say, well, you know, we might win that battle. It's kind of in some ways ignoring our own mortality. If, if we're going to live forever. Yeah, we're going to live forever. <laughs> it's ridiculous. We're not going to live forever. Um, I think it's just how you report things. And because social media has taken off, everyone has an opinion. And it's it's and it can be really triggering when someone famous dies and you are dealing with your own diagnosis or someone close to you. And actually, it's okay just to switch off and to turn off the TV and social media for a couple of weeks to get your headspace sorted, because it is everywhere when you start looking for it. Let me give you credit for a phrase that I heard you say, which I, I'm a massive oh, no, just, fan just of. Say, just say heard again. I miss the Welsh accent. Heard. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, but I heard you use the term that I've never heard before, nutribollocks. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you can talk to me about this. <laughs> so... It's amazing what the cancer space is like online. As a doctor, I never told patients what to eat after breast cancer because I assumed, which is correct, you just need to eat a healthy, balanced diet, 80-20, cake and bubbly or beer when you feel like it, but most of the time a healthy, balanced diet. And then when I was diagnosed and I started putting videos out on Instagram and Twitter, I just saw this stream of celebrities, influencers, doctors saying, sugar causes cancer and you need to eat more kiwis or turmeric will cure cancer or eat mushrooms. This is bullshit. There is no science behind any of this. But a lot of people are making a lot of money by selling books and courses and supplements saying they will cure cancer. And it started off with a video by the happy pair who did a podcast with a doctor and she said, 
eating mushrooms can prevent cancer. And they put that into a video and they assumed as they would that she was right, but they said in their reel, mushrooms can cure cancer. This is bollocks. There is no science behind it at all, but you have how many hundreds of thousands of followers? It's nutri bollocks. But cancer patients, you want something you can control. You want a cure when you know medical science isn't going to win. And it's easy to spend 80 quid on a magnesium supplement than to exercise and drink less and eat healthily. It's quick, it's simple, it's not hard work. But they don't understand that just because someone has a million followers doesn't mean they're telling the truth. And most of us don't know how to go look into claims, see, is this true and how to read a scientific paper? If he's got a best-selling book on Amazon, it must be true. Because most doctors and nurses treating cancer patients aren't on social media and they have no idea these claims are out there. And it's like this whole secret world of cancer patients sharing things. And I'm trying to break through by just explaining the science, but it's, it's really, really hard. If... Uh, so for the person listening to this now that says, you know, I, I think that's a really important message. How could, say, the average person that's never been to medical school, that's not a nutritionist, how could they yeah. decipher between a claim that is promising a lot? You know, you eat these, this yeah. pack of organic blueberries and it'll, it'll cure me of my terminal cancer. And, <laughs> and, and you know, just, just yeah. something that's rubbish. Yeah. That's a great question. I would say if a diet works, it would be recommended by oncologists all over the world based on trials looking at thousands of people. You would be given that information for free on the NHS. Your doctor would tell you if it was that important. Hmm. Glowing testimonials on a website are not the same as the results of a trial comparing blueberries to chemotherapy. And you have no idea those testimonials are actually true and written by one person. Is the person telling you about this making money off you? Are they selling a book or a course or a claim or getting a bonus from a discount code? Because if they're making money off it, it's another reason to say this is a scam. Simple things like that. Has that been corroborated by three or four other people? Are there five different books telling you that blueberries are the cure? So other people have done the evidence and backed it up. And all too often, there's an American guy called Chris Beats Cancer who's had colorectal cancer. And he said he cured his cancer with IV vitamin C infusions and a vegan diet. Actually, he had surgery to remove his bowel cancer. He then chose not to have chemo and changed his diet. But you can't, there's never going to be a trial of someone having surgery comparing someone not. And it, it's, you just need to use a bit of common sense and just think, is this really true? It sounds great. I just stop eating sugar. But this is the thing about sugar. Almost everything you eat is broken down into sugar. Bread, fruit, vegetables, they all go to basic carbohydrates. And because most people who've had a cancer treatment have had surgery, they do not have cancer in their body. There may be cells floating around, and that's why we give radiotherapy, chemotherapy, tamoxifen, to stop those cells waking up and finding a friend in the future. So by you cutting out sugar out of your diet you're basically starving your whole body because the cancer's gone it doesn't make sense right. but doctors like me don't have pr agents and branding and a team of gurus making us look slick and sexy on the internet to show you how to win a successful hook in the marketing campaign we're just trying to say thanks for watching did you know this is bollocks and you compare us to the big influencers out there it's really hard to break through 
Right. And it's interesting because um, on this show, you know, we, we do a lot of stuff with with health and mm. we've had um, a lot of people on and some of them have, you know, undoubtedly come up with some pretty, you know, crazy, crazy claims. Uh, for instance, we, we uh, my colleague, um, he hosted the, the happy period, he had a conversation with them. Yeah. And I, I don't think that they're bad guys, but these are not doctors. These are not nutritionists. They're not. You know, so it's, it's definitely worth saying that. And I think that kind of you raise a really good point because I think a simple way to kind of distill that the the longevity gurus from, you know, what's, what's actual fact is, is it does this seem too good to be true? Exactly. You know? And I think another thing is we know the three biggest things anybody can do to reduce the risk of getting cancer, to stay healthy, to stop cancer coming back are boring. And they are hard work. They are exercising, aerobic and resistance training, cutting down your alcohol and eating a healthy, balanced diet with very few processed foods. That's it. But if you are buying a book or a supplement, you are probably in the healthier scheme of people. You are probably exercising more and eating more fruit and veg and looking after yourself. And it's easy to buy a book and say, yes, that's going to do it than to actually do the hard work. The, and but they they sell their claims. They are it's the PR, the branding. They know how to. They are making money off of people buying their book to tell you how to live forever. They do, and this is this is another thing. You assume if someone writes a book that everything in it is double checked by scientists that the papers they have read are accurate. Rubbish. Publishers assume that what you have written is true. They don't fact check. And you can have a scientific paper talking about say. I've got sugar and cancer and it may be 20 pages long. And the conclusion is you can't cut out sugar to cure cancer. But if in the paragraph at the very beginning, they say one study suggested it, they can take that little line and put that into the book to prove their point. It's not the same as a scientific paper with the research. They've just cherry picked the information they need to make money. Right. Which sounds really yeah. callous and I might get, but, it, but it's just that, just because it's a book on Amazon, it doesn't mean that it's it's scientific or it's safe. Uh, and I agree with you. And, and I think that just like one point to, to absolutely prove this point is that if you look at books that are written about the carnivore diet, the vegan diet, all these books are, are loaded with references. They both can't yeah. be right. <laughs> one and, of them has to be wrong. <laughs> no. And again, just because references are in there doesn't mean the author has read the paper. What you often do is you read a review and then you quote all the papers from that review to look like you've read them. Oh, it must be true. There's lots of scientific papers in there. Those papers could have been done 50, 60 years ago. They could be badly designed, but we get impressed by all that research. And even doctors can put shit out there because most doctors don't have any nutritional training. And a lot of nutritionists don't have any training in cancer. And I get asked about supplements I have never heard of. And I say, doesn't that tell you something? I've never heard of turkey tail mushrooms. Why would you think it kills cancer? Oh, but this person said it. Yeah, but I'm an expert and I've never heard of it. Oh, that means that you're wrong. It, it's, it's a, you, people are desperate for hope and they want an easy way out. And it's how you try and filter through too good to be true. Does your doctor recommend it? Has your doctor heard of it? Right. But it's hard to ask your doctor a question, whereas you can ask someone on Instagram and they'll come back to you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd be curious to know uh, for you, because obviously you were uh, 40, as you mentioned, when you got your first yeah. diagnosis. Um, for most people who don't know, it takes a long, long time to become a consultant surgeon. 
you know, it does. I, you'd have to, there's a lot of sacrifices, you know, I, I, a lot that goes into that. What was it like having to give that up where you've spent probably most of your life working to get that, to get that, that position? What was that like giving, giving that up? And then oh, I can't tell you. So I, I went to Cardiff Uni in 1993 and I did a PhD to help get the next job. And I became a consultant surgeon in 2013. So that's 20 years of my life to become a consultant surgeon. Two years later, I got breast cancer. Three years later, I was forced to retire. And part of me thought I'd be happy to leave breast cancer behind because it was really triggering dealing with cancer patients on a daily basis when I was reliving my own diagnosis. Every time I saw a woman break down and cry, I was right back with me. But then I realized I couldn't remember my last operation because I didn't know it was my last operation. And that sense of being able to help people and who am I if I'm not a surgeon? Because my life was surgery. I had no hobbies. I was doing long hours, long training. And I was suddenly 43, unemployed, tiny pension, no hobbies, no children, because chemo made me infertile, home alone. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who I should become. I didn't know how long I had left. And it was, I grieved. I grieved so much for a career that I, I, I loved. But I was also glad to step away from it. But it was, it's really, really, really hard. But in some ways, I had a wake-up call at 43 that my life was just work. And work should not be the basis of your life. And now I volunteer at a hedgehog shelter. I've got time to exercise. I'm writing. I, my life is so much more balanced now. I have the luxury of time to do what I want. Um, but it was really hard thinking... I'm never going to help anybody again. Mm. And I was wrong. The, the best thing though, during COVID, when we were all washing our hands, that I can do this, it's like scrubbing up again, like going into theatre. <laughs> I love this. It's like, yay. It seems like you've really pivoted because as you mentioned, you've kind of gone from a career that you sacrificed so much to get yeah. to now you're a, a speaker, you're a podcaster, you've written a book. Uh, how have you kind of gone about pivoting and obviously finding meaning in essentially a different life? How have you gone about doing that? A lot of it was by accident, really. Um, I started a blog because my husband told me to. He was a tech guy and people responded to my blog because I was trying to explain honestly what it's like as a surgeon and a doctor. And that led to me being asked to talk to a load of medical students to tell them how to break bad news. And that led to me being asked to do a TED talk, which led to me being asked to talk here. And I suddenly found I had a new purpose. And then I started talking about my own experiences, which led to me writing articles in the paper. It's all kind of been word of mouth of just, oh, I could do this and do that. And I love helping people. But my problem is when you are available, people can ask you questions. Any, any hour of the day. And I have to learn to find time for me when I'm not helping everyone out there. Um, and it's, it's really hard finding that balance. I don't want to spend my life on my phone, but the phone is on. And also I work for free. So all the work I do, all the videos I put out, I don't get paid for a lot of it. And it's really hard finding that balance of who am I and who am I without cancer? But it's just, it came down to a need to help people and to not be bored because I had some low, low months on the sofa, staring into space thinking, what am I gonna do with my life? What is the point? What do I do now? I've lost everything. 
Right. And it's worth me me highlighting as well that I went through your Instagram page and uh you've you've got you post unbelievable content. And for some of the people that are kind of going through this, I was reading some of the comments on some of your videos talking about hormone replacement therapy yeah. um, and side effects and whatnot. And people they're incredibly endeared to you. And some of the comments are really remarkable. So clearly, you know, that is making a massive difference in people's yeah. lives. I've always thought if I can just make a difference in one person's life and just help one person understand how to cope, then my job is done. And I still find it really weird. I don't realize the impact I have. I get recognized in the streets. Think, I'm just me. I'm, I'm just Liz. I don't see my, I don't see the impact I'm having, but it's incredible to know that you can help women. And I'm probably help far more women all over the world than I ever did as a breast surgeon in a small hospital in a tiny town in England. And it's, it's incredible. And it's great to see more doctors getting on board and engaging with social media. And I'd, I'd, I'd love everyone to be out there just all sharing the same message because it's scary when you're diagnosed with a cancer, you don't know where to go for information and we're just trying to rebalance it. But yeah, right. it's, um, it is weird how my life has turned completely upside down. To anyone listening to this now that is going through, they've just had a diagnosis or they've got a loved one that is just had a diagnosis of cancer, what would be your best advice to them? I think to anyone diagnosed, you're not alone. It's going to be scary. It's a real emotional roller coaster. And what you need to do is surround yourself with warmth and support. You will lose some of your best friends because they just can't cope and they don't know what to say. And people you've barely met will suddenly come out of the woodwork. And it's giving yourself the time and space. There are no rules. There is no right way to do cancer. You do not need to copy people like me who say, oh, I'm going to cycle up a mountain. Bloody, I can't walk out the door. You'll find your own way and that's fine for you. And you don't need to share anything online. You can keep it private because it's 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 so hard to feel guilty that you're not doing what other people are doing. I'd say read my book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, because it does walk you through from the beginning to the end. But it, it's get common sense information and share that information with your family so they understand what you're going through. But you're not alone. If someone you know is being diagnosed, it's almost harder because you have to watch them go through it. And you don't really understand. And you don't know how to help. And you don't know what to say because we're not told at school what to say to someone with cancer and you can feel impotent and useless and lost. And I think it's remembering there'll be some pretty tough emotions coming your way from them and you may have to absorb them and find a way to deal with them outside. It's like the circle of shit. The cancer patient can throw shit at you. and You can't throw it back. You have to keep moving right. it out and out. You need your own support to talk to you about it. And often reading on charity websites about what they're going through can help you understand. It's tough and you will get through this, but they, you may not get through it the way that you think you would. And it's, it's really hard if they're doing cancer differently to how you would. So my mum's going through cancer treatment in the minute and she's happy for the doctor to tell her what she needs to know when she needs to know it. And I'm on the internet doing everything I tell my patients not to. And it's like, no, I have to let her do it her way. And it's remembering it is all about them for a little while. I love it. I love it. And I think that this conversation has been uh, a real, real, uh, been full of just so much gold and so much, um, just been incredible to learn kind of more about your story. So I really, really do thank you uh, 
and for sharing it. Um, and we just got a couple of questions that we always wind down our interviews with. And one of the questions uh, that we kind of always ask is, you yourself, you've written a book. Um, yes. You mentioned earlier that you had kind of 10 books that you turned to when you got first diagnosed. Um, outside of all that, we always ask our guests, are there any books that you've read throughout your life that have had a great impact on you? There are. So as, as a girl, Anne of Green Gables. The series was my go-to about this Canadian orphan who loved literature and loved reading. And I that really got me into reading. I would take 13 books on a one-week holiday and fly <laughs> through them. Um, a book that really changed me as a doctor and a patient is a beautiful book written by a doctor called Paul Kalanithi called When Breath Becomes Air. Mm. And he is a doctor who had metastatic lung cancer, who was also a Stanford... English literature major so he writes beautifully and following him on his emotional journey was just incredibly eye-opening I think that's the book that had the math the biggest impact on me both as a doctor and as a patient amazing and uh, my final question for you today before I ask you to sign off and tell these guys all about the great work you're putting out there is the question we sign off all our podcasts with great what makes a life worth living <laughs> now this is a really interesting question because i often do talks about stress and resilience i ask people what do you want written on your gravestone did i want them to say she was an amazing surgeon who always came in at midnight on a sunday to see the patient no i think for me it's having people that love you and knowing you are loved I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Liz, where can these guys connect with you and where would you like to send our audience? So I send you to my website, liz.arredon.co.uk, where I have my cancer blog. I have all my Instagram videos. So you can get a lot of breast cancer educational content there. I wrote a book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, with another Dr. Trisha Greenhouse, which is basically your go-to guide for you and your family members. I'm on Twitter as... Oh, now Liz underscore Ariadne and Instagram Ariadne Liz. And I have my memoir coming out next summer with Unbound called Under the Knife. You can pre-order now. And that talks about my story as a female surgeon in a man's world, learning how to cope with everything that life threw at me. Everything will be linked below. If you're listening on audio, you can swipe up and click on anything discussed today. If you listen on YouTube, just click the description. Liz, this has been a, a true pleasure, a true privilege for me. Um, you know, I've absolutely loved uh, listening to you and hopefully this this content really helps people. Oh. And alongside all the stuff that you're putting out there, I, I, you know, I feel really good about this. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. No, it's been brilliant. And lovely to hear another Welsh voice again. It's been a while. <laughs>